may dwell with the Lord is the question. Who may dwell with the Lord? Psalm 15 is another uh, psalm of David, as it says at the superscription there, a, a psalm of David. Uh, David wrote at least half of the 150 psalms are attributed to David one place or another. Psalm 15 deals with uh, who is qualified. Uh, the question here um, at the beginning, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? I mean, who, who has the, the privilege to approach the Lord? And <coughs> we'll talk about this as we work our way through here. But <clears throat> the idea here is who is qualified to worship, really. Uh, the reason you would go to uh, the tabernacle, the reason you would go to the holy hill is to worship. And so really David is asking, who is the worshiper that God accepts? Uh, who is uh, in a position to approach God? Well, uh, we were created in the image of God to worship him. That's why we were created. As people, we have the ability to know God, to appreciate God, to worship him. What a tremendous privilege it is. You know, you think about the rest of the created animals and all of that in the world. None of them can know God like we know God. We are created in his image uh, for that purpose. We were created for God, for his pleasure. Well, true worship begins with true faith. Uh, note uh, my reference up here, Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So the first thing that one ever does to please God is to put their faith in him. Uh, we must come to God in faith. Uh, faith takes God at his word, and more specifically, saving faith takes God at his word concerning his son. Uh, we read this about this in 1 John chapter 5. We, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. Here's what God has to say. Uh, he who believes in the Son of God has a witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar. So you accept what God has to say about his Son. And if you don't, you're saying God's a liar because this is, God is on record as saying this about his Son. And it says, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So the great issue before God is believing the testimony that God has given of his son. It's all about Jesus, who he is as our Lord and Savior. Life is found through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, saving faith is really an act of worship. One day Jesus was talking to a Samaritan woman, and the conversation turned to worship. The context was really one of evangelism, as Jesus endeavored to share the truth of who he is who he was with her. But in the midst of that evangelistic conversation, Jesus said this to her, John chapter 4. The hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God's looking for true worshipers. And then he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him, must worship in spirit and truth. There's the qualifier. I really think that's what we're talking about in Psalm 15. 
It's about what constitutes being a true worshiper who is able to approach God, come into his presence, as it were. Um, So we're saved by faith alone, which is our first act of true worship. But then true worshipers live out their faith, not perfectly. I think we're talking general qualifications here, general characteristics. But certainly the tenor of their lives is reflective of being true worshipers. And that's what Psalm 15 is about. So note our outline here. Uh, Psalm 15, who may dwell with the Lord? Verse 1 is, who may approach the Lord? That's the question that's out there. And then 2, 5 through 8, the character of the true worshiper. And then finally, at the end here, 5b, the blessing for the true worshiper. Well, we just uh, studied Psalm 14, and Psalm 14 was about the way of the wicked. Psalm 15 is about the way of the true worshiper. And it's really given in a Q&A format. We do not know the exact occasion, as we often don't. We don't know the exact occasion for the writing of this psalm, but some suggest it may have been at the time when they brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Uh, the subject matter of Psalm 15 would certainly fit an occasion like that. So maybe that's, that's a possibility, but again, we don't really know. Well, let's look at it. Verse 1, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Now, the tabernacle was a tent. It's amazing how <laughs> very humble means that God uh, had to represent him as far as his special presence on earth back here. Uh, It was just a tent. It was a tent in which God's special presence was manifested in the Old Testament. really consisted of two compartments, uh, namely the holy place and the inner sanctuary called the most holy place or the holy of holies. The tabernacle was the special place of worship because it represented the unique presence of God in the midst of his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. Now, God is everywhere. Uh, I mean, he is... uh, Um, you know, not only sovereign, but uh, he is everywhere all the time. That's certainly true. But his presence in a very special, unique way was represented here at the tabernacle. Well, David is obviously speaking somewhat figuratively here, as only the priest could go into the tabernacle proper. Uh, All Jews could get quite close, you know, right around the tabernacle. But as far as actually going in, only the priest could do that. And only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and that only once a year. So, clearly, he's not talking about uh, living or abiding in the tabernacle. No one could actually do that except for the priests. But pious Jews did desire to live in close fellowship with God, dwelling in his presence, as it were. Uh, We see this, for example, in Psalm 84, great psalm. And uh, we read there, Psalm 84, 2, My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now, it's interesting that uh, the sons of Korah actually wrote Psalm 84. So they weren't actually going into uh, into the tabernacle either or into the temple, uh, they, they wouldn't go there. Only the priests could do this. But the expresses here a desire to be near God, in his presence, in close fellowship with him. That's the sentiment. 
The word abide here, when it says who may abide in your tabernacle, uh, it's the idea of sojourn. As, as one comes as a guest, receiving the fellowship hospitality that is allowed him as, as he approaches. So the question then is who can approach God and be received by him as a welcomed guest with special blessing? Who can draw near to God in this special place of blessing? The second question is very similar. Who may dwell in your holy hill? Uh, to make an emphasis, the Hebrew technique was often to pretty much ask the same question twice uh, in a slightly different way, but it makes an emphasis, and that seems to be what we have here. Uh, Mount Zion was the place where the temple would ultimately be built. Uh, this was God's special place of dwelling, of his own choosing, as we find in the Old Testament. Again, the sentiment is essentially the same. Who can have fellowship with God at his place, at his holy dwelling place? The answer to this uh, probing question is now given in verse 2 through 5a. Note David's answer does not require the prerequisite of doing all kinds of rituals. It's not about just doing the right thing before you get there. Say, well, we're getting close to Jerusalem now. We better, um, better kind of do these uh, religious rituals and all the washings and everything. That's not emphasized here. No, David's answer is that the true worshiper demonstrates that he is a true worshiper in his everyday life, in the personal interactions of life, in how he treats others. Now, don't expect uh, that you can treat people like dirt and then show up with acceptable worship before God. Uh, this was, by the way, a serious issue at Corinth. Um, that is, how the believers were mistreating one another. So much so that many of them were sick and many of them had even died. Obviously, their worship was not acceptable to God when they're living that way. Paul even said, quote, you come together not for the better, but for the worse. I hope that's never true of us, right? I mean, that's what it was at Corinth. Every time you guys get together, you, you leave worse off for being together. Uh, that's terrible. And many were sick, many were dying. It was not a pretty picture. Well, God demands that worship of him be in truth which emanates from a lifestyle of integrity. And that is what David essentially goes on to say. Who can approach God as his welcomed and honored guest? Who may dwell in fellowship with God at his holy hill? Verse 2, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. David's answer here is representative uh, the characterizations listed here in verses 2 through 5 are not exhaustive, uh, but they are representative of the character uh, of those that we might call true worshipers that uh, God accepts and allows to approach in, in worship, who worship in truth, as, as it were. And again, you know, we're not talking about, okay, you've got to do all these things perfectly all the time, or there would be, no true, there would be nobody to worship. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, we all uh, have faults and, and so forth. But he's talking generally as far as what characterizes uh, those that are true worshipers. And notice he begins with uh, the one who walks uprightly. He who walks uprightly. This is the first thing mentioned. It's kind of a catch-all designation of what defines the true worshiper. Uprightly is also translated as with integrity, blamelessly, or honestly. This is a person who has a lifestyle pattern that lives an honest-to-God kind of life. 
They consistently live a life of spiritual integrity. They live a life of consistent obedience. Now, the opposite of walking uprightly is that of being a hypocrite. A hypocrite really doesn't belong in the house of God. Doesn't belong in the courts of the Lord. Doesn't belong in the place of worship. I mean, it's uh, inconsistent. It's really an insult to God. In the Old Testament, God's blessing was promised for obedience and his curses were uh, really promised for disobedience. Uh, The disobedient could not expect God's blessing or privilege of being acceptable in their worship to God. Now, in addition, he says then, he who works righteousness, that is, he consistently does what is right before God. He is known by his fruit of doing right. How a person lives is reflective of their relationship with God. Then, too, he speaks the truth in his heart. Note he doesn't just say truth once in a while, but it emanates from his heart. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth tells on the heart. This person is a truth speaker. True worshipers are truth speakers. He is known for doing right and speaking truth. So this person really lives a full-orbed life of integrity in terms of both doing and speaking. Notice verse 3. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. It's all about how you treat people. Furthermore, the true worshiper does not backbite with his tongue. The tongue is more telling than any other member of the body, pun intended. James warns that the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. And he also says this, James chapter 3, but no man can tame the tongue. It's an untamable problem. It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. God can tame it, but within ourselves, we can't do it. We're going to need God's help on this one. No person within themselves has the power to control their tongue. It's really out of control. Uh, J. Vernon McGee said this, The tongue is like a fire. When it's under control, it's a blessing. When it's out of control, it is devastating. And how true that is. Backbiters. Uh, even the word backbite kind of sounds like something terrible is happening, right? Uh, David Jeremiah says a backbite is the word for slander, which means to wander about on the tongue And pictures one who walks here and there pouring out verbal venom and poisoning others behind their backs. Ooh, that's ugly, isn't it? Uh, This is totally unbecoming of a true worshiper. The Holman Christian Study Bible, God is intolerant of those who destroy others with their speech. Slandering and discrediting come from an attitude of hatred and a desire to harm others. David in Psalm 101 said this, Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. David's like, I'm not going to put up with this. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. So a true worshiper is one who does not do evil to his neighbor either. A life of integrity is serious about treating people properly. This is pleasing to God. The great command is to love God. The second greatest command is to love our neighbor is ourselves. David then says, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. 
A person of integrity does not quietly discredit a friend. Behind their back, he does not run him down. David Gazik says, We might have thought David would have given greater priority to religious obligations, such as sacrifice or purification ceremonies, which certainly have their place, but are useless without the practical goodness, without the practical godliness of being good and honest and honorable to neighbors and friends. That is interesting. David really puts the emphasis here on how you treat people. Notice he goes on to say in verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. Note the attitude here. He does not appreciate a vile person. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. So a vile person is one who is literally a worthless reprobate, who has no interest in God or spiritual things. There are really spiritual rejects. The true worshiper is not neutral. Uh, he sides in with God and the things of God and is opposed to those who are vile. Now, a true worshiper loves what God loves and hates what God hates. This is not about a personal vendetta but rather about standing with God and against that which is opposed to him. To truly love what is right and holy, one has to be opposed to what is evil. And uh, those who are vile, um, what they stand for, the, the true worshiper cannot go along with that. Uh, we have different verses that emphasize this idea. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, Proverbs 8, 13. And then again in Psalm 97, 10, you who love the Lord hate evil. Sometimes I think Christians think uh, that if you're really godly, it just means you just kind of go along with everything uh, and everybody. David had a little different take. He said true worshipers despise the vile. In other words, they don't appreciate what they stand for. Uh, to despise is to strongly dislike what someone stands for. It's that idea. True spiritual integrity takes a moral stand for what is right. That's what I see here. Uh, you can't truly love God if you don't love evil. You say, well, the vile person, I have no problem there. No, you don't appreciate what they stand for. Uh, no, uh, he's despised in his eyes, he says. So yes, in a sense, we do love the sinner but hate the sin, but the sinner is so identified with his sin that he is called a vile person. And the true worshiper cannot go along with what this person is all about. Rather, it says, he despises him. But in contrast, the true worshiper honors those who fear the Lord. It is clear where his allegiance is at. He despises the vile, but he honors those who fear the Lord. To fear the Lord is to reverence the Lord. Furthermore, the true worshiper swears to his own hurt and does not change. The person is a person of their word. This person is a person of their word. They keep their vows. They keep their promises to God. This is indicative, by the way, of a reverence for God. Uh, to swear is to make an oath. An oath uh, to uh, the true God really is sacred. An oath brings God into the equation in a very special and specific way. You see, to swear is to promise God that you're going to do something. And it really calls God into it to, to say, God, hold me accountable if I don't keep my vow. 
So, so how someone views a vow before God really says volumes about their true heart attitude towards God. We see in Ecclesiastes, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. So vows are serious. And this person, the true worshiper, takes his vow seriously. He doesn't say, well, I know I made a, I swore to God I'd do this, but no, forget it. No, 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 no. The true worshiper is a truth teller, verse 2, and keeps his vows, verse 4. And he keeps his promise even though it may be to his own hurt. He keeps his word even when it will cost him. It's going to hurt. This is sacred to him. And no matter what, he won't violate the vow. Verse 5. He who does not put out his money to usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Usury is the idea of lending out money for interest. Now, in the Old Testament, the Jews were not allowed to charge usury to a fellow Jew. We read, for example, here in Exodus 22, If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. Now, it's interesting because the Jews could charge the Gentiles interest money. Isn't that interesting? But they could not charge their fellow Jews. The principle here is that a true worshiper will not exploit God's people and take financial advantage of them, as God had instructed. He'll be ethical in his money matters, doing things God's way. So the true worshiper aligns his life with God's truth instead of thinking selfishly in the matter of money. And in this same vein, he does not take a bribe against the innocent. He refuses to take advantage of people or abuse them in this way. He's all about true justice. You know, they say every, every man has his price. Well, the true worshiper, however, cannot be bought. Again, he's a man of integrity through and through. Back here again in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 16, you shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. And again, Deuteronomy 27, cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person. And all the people shall say, Amen. There are 11 descriptions here uh, of the one who may approach the Lord and have worshipful fellowship with him. Here's the way it goes. The one who walks uprightly, works righteousness, speaks truth, does not backbite, that is slander, does not wrong his neighbor, does not reproach his friend, despises a vile person, honors those who fear the Lord, keeps his oath, does not charge usury, and does not accept bribes. You know what this person is? They're serious about the Lord. They're ordering their life according to God's ways as a consistent way of life. In short, the true worshiper is a person who lives in obedience to the revealed will of God as a way of life. Not perfectly. None of us are <laughs> perfect. James says we all stumble in many ways. But there is a, an overall direction in terms of this person's life. A person with this kind of character shows that their position with the Lord is firmly established. Notice it says, he who does these things shall never be moved. Now, that's an interesting phrase. 
He who does these things shall never be moved. In short, the true worshiper is a person who lives in obedience to the revealed will of God very consistently as a way of life. This uh, terminology, by the way, of never being moved is used by David throughout the Psalms, and it's very telling how David uses it. Let's consider a few examples. Psalm 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Same language. And then Psalm 21, verse 7. The king trusts in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Then again, Psalm 62, a great psalm. Verse 2. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. Verse 6, he only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. So the true worshiper is one who lives a life of obedience. And in that position, he shall never be moved. There is absolute security there before the Lord. He will be in fellowship with the Lord forever. It's kind of what uh, John tells us, right? 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Kind of a parallel thought. I read a story about a man, true story, some time ago he was in in England. And while he was there, uh, he was introduced to a businessman. And the businessman, who happened to be a Christian, blurted out to the guy who introduced him. He says, was this young man, is he O and O? Well, the man who had introduced him said, what do you mean by O and O? And the response is, Well, is he out and out for Christ? (laughs) Is he O and O? Uh, That's a great question. Are we all out for Christ? This defines the true worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. Well, God help us to be among them. It is they who will dwell in in the presence of the Lord forever. They shall never be moved from that position. Remember how it starts out here? Who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Well, the one who takes God seriously gives evidence of being a true worshiper. And they will remain in that. They, the, they can approach the Lord, and they will be in the presence of the Lord forever. He who does these things shall never be moved. He's not going to be moved from that position. You know, the Reformers uh, often said, we're saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves does not remain alone. It's a life-changing kind of faith. That's really what's represented here. The vile person has no regard for the things of God. But those who really reverence God, who fear God, it's a life-changing reality, and it shows in their life. Not perfectly, but these kind of things that evidence obedience to the will of God are reflected in the life of a true worshiper of God. All right, let's have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer.
Thank you.